When we first started production on the antigen series, we could not have imagined how vaccine development would become top of mind for so many people around the world in response to COVID-19. We were simply hoping to provide expert answers for common questions about the importance of vaccination. Fast forward a few months, and we're in the midst of a global pandemic that has impacted every aspect of our lives and reinforced the value of protecting against infectious disease. Now, there are hundreds of podcasts, newsletters, and TV shows all dedicated to what's happening now and how the pandemic is evolving, including stories of the difficult challenges we face, along with some bright spots on the progress we're making in combating COVID-19. You may have even heard that Pfizer is collaborating with BioNTech on a potential vaccine for coronavirus. We'll touch more on this in a future episode. Hi, my name is Lindsay Dietschy, and I've been at Pfizer for nearly 17 years. And I've thought a lot about the role we can collectively play through scientific advancements that help people live longer and healthier lives. In my current position, I lead our Global Health Partnerships team, where we help bring Pfizer's medicines and vaccines to underserved populations in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the Middle East. And I'll be your new host. For this special mini-series of The Antigen, we're connecting with the experts to give you accurate information on COVID-19. For example, we'll share what we've learned from past global health emergencies, details on the quest for a vaccine, what's important for us to do before a vaccine is available, and how companies and partners across the globe are working together to control further spread of this virus. Kicking things off today, I'm connecting with Dr. David Swardlow. He joined Pfizer in 2015 and is the clinical epidemiology lead for vaccines, as well as an infectious disease expert. Prior to his time at Pfizer, David worked at the Centers for Disease Control for 25 years and was part of the team that helped with the response to the outbreak of the MERS coronavirus in 2013 and 2014. So thanks for joining me today, David. In your work at the CDC, you helped prepare for a lot of different pandemics. What does it mean to be prepared and what does the decision-making look like when it comes to pandemic preparedness? Maybe you could share your thoughts. Well, uh, thanks so much for inviting me. And um, yes, preparedness is incredibly important. I think um, at CDC, we worked on bioterrorism preparedness plans and built up stockpiles of needed medications and other, uh, and other materials uh, since the 1990s. Uh, we also developed influenza pandemic plans and um, we conducted exercises uh, where we um, sought to see if we were ready for a pandemic. Um, I led the MERS response at CDC and uh, we created a whole preparedness structure, ways of identification of cases with surveillance and laboratory testing, guidance for isolation of cases and quarantine of contacts, infection control guidance, travelers guidance. Um, so in some ways, I think, you know, we had prepared a lot. Um, but we also did some other activities. We, we also conducted infectious disease modeling. And um, we, in fact, published a series of papers in the journal um, 
clinical infectious diseases, where we sought to see if uh, the U.S. was actually um, prepared for a pandemic. We created a baseline uh, pandemic of mild to moderate severity and said, how many hospitalizations would there be? How many deaths would there be? What, how many ventilators would you need? That sort of thing. And, and we determined that there would be between 700,000 and 4.3 million hospitalizations, uh, between 54 and 538,000 deaths in the United States. But most importantly, we determined that we would need an additional 35,000 to 60,000 ventilators. Um, and we also estimated that we need up to 7.3 billion surgical masks or respirators. And maybe most important, we determined that a vaccine would not be able to be developed and tested and given to people in time to have a big impact. So we wrote plans, we conducted exercises, but were we completely prepared? I think the answer is no. Yeah, thanks for sharing that perspective, David. It sounds like a lot of work was done in putting together a framework, and it's great to hear that thoughtful approach took place. You know, in thinking about all the steps that we knew could have been taken, and then how this pandemic in particular has played out, you know, the role of ventilators and protective equipment obviously seems to be an opportunity we're grappling with right now. So knowing the work that you've done in different pandemics in different areas, you know, how would you say COVID-19 compares to other public health crises that we've seen in the past, maybe even Spanish flu? What do you see as similar or even what's different yeah, well, we got lucky in a lot of ways with previous epidemics and pandemics. You know, the 2009 H1N1 uh, was transmissible, but not severe. Um, SARS, which occurred in 2002 to 2003, caused about 8,000 cases and 800 deaths. And MERS, which has been going on since 2012, um, with about 2,500 cases and 850 deaths, were both severe, but, but they were not transmissible. They were not very highly transmissible. Uh, with SARS, patients became pretty ill and so they could be easily identified. Um, the virus was located in the lower respiratory tract and viral loads were low in the first week of illness. So, so by the time viral loads increased in patients, they were already sick in the ICU and, and not likely to transmit to others. Um, COVID, COVID is different. It's Detected the, the virus is detected in the upper respiratory tract, especially the nose. So it's easier to transmit than a virus that's present only in the lower respiratory tract. Um, it's detected in the first week of illness, so it can transmit before the patient becomes ill. And mildly ill and asymptomatic infections are common. Um, and the virus is detected from those patients, and transmission has occurred from these people. So all these factors makes transmissibility higher and the virus um, difficult to control. Um, you know, COVID, every outbreak has different characteristics. Uh, COVID is remarkable for the high severity of severe illness, the higher death rates in men, the low impact on children. And although seen with some other viruses, the high death rates in the elderly and persons with underlying conditions is important. Um, the racial disparities with deaths occurring at much higher rates in Blacks, um, for example, have also been uh, profound. And with other influenza pandemics, there are at least treatments available. With COVID, we don't have any real clear treatments yet. There's, there's a couple of uh, potential um, treatments that are, there have been some good studies lately, but, but overall, we don't have any clear treatments. And um, 
And I think finally, COVID is just having a much larger impact on society. And in other pandemics, we tried other measures such as closing schools and wearing masks, but I never thought that our society would tolerate being almost completely shut down the way it has. Um, it really has been a profound response, which I think has flattened the curve in many areas, but, but we must recognize that the economic and personal consequences, especially job loss, have been tragic. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, thinking about you, what you mentioned related to the economic cost to society and the personal cost to society and reflecting even on maybe some of the work that you did around Ebola in West Africa, what were some of the approaches or even lessons learned around containing the Ebola crisis there and even, you know, the return to normal uh, everyday, you know, interaction socially and even for routine health related visits? Yeah, well, <clears throat> Ebola, but but also SARS and MERS were able to be controlled for the most part using really similar measures. And um, this included identification of cases and their contacts, isolation of cases and quarantine of contacts, um, as well as good infection control. And so that was similar for all, you know, for all three. Um, they They required huge public health efforts and record and coordinate responses, but in the end, they were controllable. Um, you know, H1N1 was different. It was it was too transmissible to contain. So efforts focused on making sure we could mitigate the impact. Efforts were focused on protecting pregnant women and individuals with neuro neurodevelopmental disabilities, and making a vaccine. So you know, I, I think that each outbreak is a, is a little different, but um, Many of them have some of the same um, characteristics in terms of of controlling, um, but but unfortunately, when a virus is really transmissible, I think it's difficult to um, contain without tremendous societal disruption, which is what we're seeing now with COVID. Yeah, absolutely, and it sounds like with the transmissible nature of H one N one. And the mitigation strategies that were in place then, that seems like we're very much taking a page out of that book and trying to mitigate the impact of COVID now. And, you know, picking up on a point you shared earlier around not having an established treatment approach for COVID and not yet, despite a lot of companies' efforts to discover a vaccine, not yet having a vaccine even thinking about the work that you did in Haiti around cholera and the outbreak there, are there any lessons we learn from how you contain an outbreak and even the availability of vaccines and helping to contain a disease once there's already an outbreak of it? Well, you know, I do think the situation in Haiti was a little different. I guess I can separate that between how we responded and then make some comments on the vaccine. But when I first started to lead the CDC's response to the cholera outbreak in Haiti, the, the death rate was extremely high, over 4%. By then, data was already coming in. People had established epidemiologic studies, and we were had already learned that many of the deaths were occurring in people that simply couldn't get to care in time, especially at night. So, you know, cholera kills very fast without rehydration therapy. So, so based on experiences responding to refugee camp outbreaks of cholera in Africa decades before, 
We established a system of rehydration stations so that everyone was within an hour or two of a rehydration site. Um, by tapping into already established HIV AIDS treatment sites. So we use those sites to be able to become rehydration facilities. And I think that led to a marked improvement in the availability of rehydration sites that people could get to um, before it was too late. And, you know, I presumably that, that helped decrease the death rate. Um, as far as vaccines are concerned, there was a lot of controversy about using vaccines in, in Haiti. Many people thought that you should focus on making sure there's clean water and sanitation. Um, but, but eventually pilot projects were performed uh, whereby vaccines were administered in certain areas. Um, and those projects were considered a success. But the, the problem was, was that even if the vaccine worked, um, there wasn't adequate vaccine to have a big impact. So the um, conclusions of all that was that the international community began to stockpile vaccine um, so that in the future it would be available right from the start. And I think that's one of the critical features. By the time there's an outbreak, it, it's very difficult to be able to obtain vaccine, deliver vaccine, uh, administer the vaccine, develop an in immune response and really be able to have an impact from vaccination. A little bit of a different topic, but now we have CEPI, which is an NGO group that works with public health and industry to prioritize and fund vaccines that cause pandemics and epidemics. And so, you know, they already were working on uh, MERS vaccines, for example. So groups like CEPI can potentially really help um, think about what vaccines need to be made and help fund companies uh, develop those vaccines. And so that could have a big impact in the future. Yeah, David, it's a really good point. I know when I heard about the Coalition for Ep Epidemic Preparedness Innovation called CEPI, it was really encouraging about how can we look towards the future and threats that could face, you know, the public and help to address those and start good scientific research to come up with solutions. And how do you see COVID affecting people differently in different parts of the world? And even ideas you have from your work around pandemic preparedness and how we can help best support people who might not be able to social distance as easily or even have access to clean water and soap to wash their hands to help support them having the best possible outcome, you know, given the circumstances. Yeah, I, I completely agree with what you just said. And um, I'm very concerned about the impact COVID may have in places like Africa. Uh, they don't have the capacity to identify and test patients. They may not have the ability to isolate cases from other household members because of household crowding. Um, and the hospital bed and ICU bed capacity is extremely low to, to none in, in some countries. Um, even with H1N1, the mortality in Africa was extremely high. So I, I am very, very concerned about what this virus, um, the impact of this virus in other parts of the world. You know, uh, building up critical medical infrastructure um, including laboratory and testing capacity, um, as well as public health capacity, and uh, if possible, um, you know, hospital beds, um, even makeshift hospital beds, can make a big difference. I think all of those things need to be done in advance, 
And um, although certainly COVID has reached Africa, you know, I still think that there's the time to be able to uh, do some of those activities uh, in order to prevent the ultimate, um, you know, loss of life. Um, so I think building up critical uh, medical infrastructure, laboratory testing, public health capacity could make a big difference. And I think it should be started as soon as possible. Yeah, thanks for sharing those reflections, David. I know a lot of us are focused on, you know, how the science is going to guide us, not just to better understanding how this COVID-19 is developing, but also what it's going to look like when we see those reduced hospitalizations, reduced cases, and and as you said, an established way to treat it and, and hopefully prevent it down the road. The science is certainly giving us a lot of hope to look forward to on this one and uh, looking forward to all that. So, David, thank you so much for joining me today. It was great to hear your perspective as an infectious disease specialist and uh, look forward to keeping a close pulse on this one so we can learn more and have the science lead us through this one. Thank you. Thank you so much for including me, and I, I enjoyed talking to you. I hope you liked hearing from David today. He's just one example of the kind of scientific expertise we hope to bring you each episode. Staying on top of the science will be an important part of this mini-series. Before we wrap it up, I want to share with you what else is going on at Pfizer. We recently announced, together with our partner, BioNTech, that the first participants have been dosed in our U.S. clinical trial program for a potential COVID-19 vaccine. To learn more about this, head over to Pfizer.com slash coronavirus. Next time on the special series of The Antigen, we'll continue to explore the ever-evolving conversation around COVID-19. In the meantime, please take a minute to rate, review, and subscribe to The Antigen. It helps new listeners find the show. Special thanks to The Antigen team at Pfizer and Wonder Media Network for producing this series along with my predecessor, Yasmina Gosti, for passing the mic to me. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again next time. This podcast is powered by Pfizer.